Welcome to the All Things Protest podcast. I'm your host, Rob Sneckenberg, and with me today are my co-hosts, Olivia Lynch and Christian Curran. In our last podcast, we touched on some of the impacts the COVID-19 pandemic is having on procurements, including some of the emergency contracting authorities being used to quickly make awards. Today, we're going to cover how agencies expedite awards in the face of a bid protest, what's commonly known as a seek a stay override. Olivia is going to take us through the seek a stay and what an override action is, and then Christian will address what contractors can do, both when they're the party whose award is being expedited and when they're the party who's protesting and is opposing an override. Olivia, why don't you get us started? Thanks, Rob. So a bid protester can get a seek a stay of performance if they timely file at GAO. And, and what this does is either prevent the agency in a pre-award situation from making an award, or if award has already been made, it requires the agency to stop performance of the new contractor. And this is really seen as the teeth in the bid protest system. It's vitally important for protesters in order to preserve their ability to receive any kind of meaningful relief if they are to get a successful protest to actually have performance stayed as GAO considers the protest. It's also important for incumbents who oftentimes protest in order to protest and attempt to achieve the seek stay in order to prevent having to transition back and forth between the incumbent to the awardee and then back to the incumbent if it's successful in its protest, which can all be very onerous. And this is one of the main reasons the ability for a protester to achieve a seek stay is one of the main reasons that we typically recommend protesters to file first at the Government Accountability Office because it is automatic that the stay is imposed on the agency if the protester files timely within the requirements of the statute. So ordinarily, the stay is going to last as long as the GAO protest is pending. And we've talked before about how often cause agencies to take corrective action. Typically in those situations, the agency will maintain the stay during the course of corrective action, which can take up to months and even years at times. And so the idea that the stay lasts as long as the GAO protest is pending is caveated by the fact that the Competition and Contracting Act statute allows an agency to override a stay if they determine that it's in the best interest of the government or unusual and compelling circumstances necessitate it. So, Olivia, in light of the COVID pandemic, are you seeing more seek stay overrides at this time? I know they're kind of rare or unusual on an ordinary basis, but have they been ramping up at all lately? So, it's not that easy to tell at the moment based on the decisions coming out of the court, although there have been a few recent decisions. From our perspective, it wouldn't be surprising if there were more overrides taking place. Anecdotally, we are hearing from agencies and from clients that this is being considered more or undertaken more. I think the fact that there may be more overrides, though, is not necessarily going to be reflected in decisions from the Court of Federal Claims challenging the overrides. Because as with any decision to sue your customer, you have to think through the impact it could have on the customer relationship. And so if agencies are using the override mechanism in situations that truly are for emergency procurements or 
where they can't allow for delay while the protest is being decided, it may be that they're just not being challenged because they're being used appropriately. So thanks, Olivia. And as you noted, the GAO protest is ongoing, and then the seek a stay override action, if it is challenged, it's going to be challenged at the Court of Federal Claims. So Christian, why don't you walk us through what's the litigation at the court like? What are the factors that are considered, and how does that process go? Sure, Rob. As you noted, I mean, it's a parallel proceeding at the court, and given, as Olivia noted, that the seek a stay is really the teeth of the GAO process, it's really important that the parallel Court of Federal Claims proceeding gets resolved as quickly as possible so that everybody can get back on the same page if the seek a stay is going to remain or if it's going to be gone if the override's upheld. So the proceedings of the Court of Federal Claims are very expedited. I mean, you're talking about a week, maybe two weeks in some instances. It really is, is fact-dependent, but it's, it's going to happen pretty quickly. So the judge of the court has to assess whether the override justification is arbitrary and capricious. And the decisions of the Court of Federal Claims often cite to the Riley's Wholesale Produce case, which was a decision that articulated a four-factor test that the court can use to walk through whether a seek a stay override was really arbitrary and capricious. And those factors are as follows. First, whether significant adverse consequences will necessarily occur if the stay is not overridden, right? So basically, why is the override necessary, right? Are there going to be severe adverse consequences that are the direct result if the stay is not overridden? So the second factor is whether reasonable alternatives to the override exist that would adequately address the circumstances presented. So really what we're talking about there is what other options does the agency have? Can they execute a bridge contract? Is there some other mechanism that can allow them to continue performance or otherwise get the services that they need short of overriding the stay? The third factor is weighing the cost of the override. And what that really gets to is taking into account the different outcomes, including the outcome that the protest could get sustained and you could have excess or repeated transition costs, termination costs, et cetera, and how that measures up against the override and whether it's necessary for the agency's needs. And the fourth factor is really the impact of the override on the competition in itself and the integrity of the procurement system, most importantly. So there, it's really a catch-all factor where the judge is going to weigh, if we allow the override here, is it really undermining the integrity of the system, kind of allowing the agency to, to get away with something where they otherwise shouldn't, or if it's really not a compelling need. I mean, you're really looking at a, a kind of catch-all factor where the judge is supposed to weigh everything and use their reasoned judgment to come to a conclusion as to whether this is acceptable. And again, all viewed through the lens of the arbitrary and capricious standard, which is a pretty high standard to meet. So those are the four factors that are considered in the Riley's Wholesale Test. There are a couple of factors that we sometimes see brought up in litigation that courts and the judges just really aren't interested in and don't hold any sway. And those are generally an agency saying, well, we need to move on, we need to override this to get the new performance because we're spending 
too much money bridging the old contract, right? That this new one is going to be cheaper and it's going to save resources for the agency. That really doesn't fly as a justification on a stay override. Similarly, the agency may articulate a really deeply held preference for the new contract. That's also not going to fly if they're just articulating reasons for why they think the new contract is better. And so we have to override to stay here to get to the new contract because it's just so much better for the agency. It provides this benefit and that benefit. That by itself isn't going to be enough. Again, steering back to the Riley's wholesale factors, really the test is looking at whether this kind of drastic measure is necessary because that's what a seek a stay override is. It's a drastic measure. It's not used all the time and it's really supposed to be used sparingly. And so kind of more subjective considerations like whether the new contract is more cost-effective or whether it's more beneficial shouldn't really play into that analysis. So Christian, are the four factors from Riley's or the other two factors that you mentioned, are those factors binding on agencies or on the Court of Federal Claims? That's a great question, Rob. No, they're not binding on agencies or the court. There's been a lot of litigation at the Court of Federal Claims involving the Riley's factors, and several judges have declined to apply them under certain circumstances. Also, the Federal Circuit has not really weighed in dispositively on the Riley's factors, but at least suggested in dicta in the safeguard decision from last year that they are not binding and not always applicable. So with that in mind, it is still important to note that the Riley's factors are still looked to by a lot of judges as a useful tool when walking through their arbitrary and capricious review. So APA review, so it's going to come down to the decisions articulated by the agency then. And while still not binding, I think we've noticed that certain agencies have actually incorporated the Riley's wholesale factors either into their internal procurement regs or policies and or just in individual override decisions. They'll they'll write up a determination and findings that track one by one the four factors. So in that case, in a certain situation like that, where an agency tracked the factors, would it be more relevant to the court how the agency considered those? Yeah, that's a great point. And you're exactly right. Agencies have kind of seen the writing on the wall. And so they're picking up on this. And I think that if the agency has self-applied that standard, then obviously it's it's going to be much more relevant to the court's review. And it just it makes the court's decision to kind of as to how to look at it a little bit easier. So that, that's the agency in the court. So what about contractors? What do you do if you're the protester? You know, what do you do if, if you're the intervener? How can you either assist the agency or combat this from a contractor's perspective? If you're a protester whose stay has just been overridden, you need to act fast and stay vigilant. Really need to assess your options pretty quickly. And that also includes weighing the business considerations of challenging the stay override. Obviously, if you're in a situation where the stay has been overridden, the agency's made a determination that they really need that service, that good, whatever they're procuring, and they're signaling that they're playing hardball. Sometimes those decisions are not very well supported. Sometimes they are. And any contractor would be remiss not to consider, depending on how well justified the decision is and and the business considerations, how that's going to impact your relationship with the customer. And so that's something that you've got to kind of wrap your head around very quickly and decide whether you're going to try to challenge the stay since you need to get in at the Court of Federal Claims and get this resolved before it's too late. 
if you're the intervener, obviously you're fully supportive of the agency's decision to override the stay and get you going on performance. But again, you still need to be able to move quickly because if the stay is challenged, it's going to happen fast. You're going to also be fighting a parallel proceeding in defense of the agency. And so you're going to want to understand how well the agency has justified their actions, what the holes are, and what you can do to help. So, Rob, the bottom line is whether you're the protester or the intervener, you've got to make quick decisions and prepare yourself for the parallel litigation so that you can be ready to move either on offense or defense very quickly. Yeah, that's right, Christian. And not to add another burden on top of, of folks today with everything going on, but just wanted to cover these scenarios to the extent that overrides become more prevalent, to the extent they may impact you. I mean, as Christian said, be prepared and move quickly. There is a time and place for an override. We may see more of them. So I wanted everyone to be aware. But with that, we'll keep an eye out for other pandemic-related developments and impacts on the bid protest and procurement system. As always, if you have any questions, feel free to give any of us a call. We're happy to assist in these challenging times. And once again, please, everyone, stay safe, and thanks for listening. The All Things Protest podcast is brought to you by Kroll & Mooring, LLP. You can find more information at kroll.com slash allthingsprotest.